Chapter Two of The Blind Brother, A Story of the Pennsylvania Coal Mines by Homer Green. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Blind Brother, Chapter Two The Burned Breaker. For a long time, Benny lay there, pitifully weeping. Then, away off somewhere in the mine, he heard a noise. He lifted his head. By degrees, the noise grew louder. Then it sounded almost like footsteps. Suppose it were someone coming. Suppose it were Tom. The light of hope flashed up in Benny's breast with the thought. But the sound ceased. The stillness settled down more profoundly than before. And about the boy's heart, the fear and loneliness came creeping back. Was it possible that the noise was purely imaginary? Suddenly, tripping down the passages, bounding from the walls, echoing through the chambers, striking faintly, but oh, how sweetly upon Benny's ears, came the well-known call. Benny! The sound died away in a faint succession of echoing ease. Benny sprang to his feet with a cry. Tom? 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 Here I am! Before the echoes of his voice came back to him, they were broken by the sound of running feet, and down the winding galleries came Tom, as fast as his lamp and his legs would take him, never stopping till he and Benny were in one another's arms. "'Benny, it was my fault!' exclaimed Tom. "'Patsy Donnelly told me you went out with Sandy McCullough while I was up at the stables, and I went way home.' and Mommy said you hadn't been there, and I came back to find you, and I went up to your door and you wasn't there, and I called and called and couldn't hear no answer, and then I thought maybe you'd try to come out alone and got off in the crossheading and got lost and— Tom stopped from sheer lack of breath, and Benny sobbed out. I did. I did get lost and scared and—and—oh, Tom, it was awful. The thought of what he had experienced unnerved Benny again. And, still holding Tom's hand, he sat down on the floor of the mine and wept aloud. "'There, Benny, don't cry,' said Tom soothingly. "'Don't cry. You're found now. Come, jump up and let's go home. Mommy'll be half crazy.' It was touching to see the motherly way in which this boy of fourteen consoled and comforted his weaker brother, and helped him again to his feet. With his arm around the blind boy's waist, Tom led him down, through the chambers, out into the south heading, and so to the foot of the slope. It was not a great distance. Benny's progress had been so slow that, although he had, as he feared, wandered off by the cross heading into the southern part of the mine, he had not been able to get very far away. At the foot of the slope they stopped to rest, and Benny told about the strange man who had talked with him at the doorway. Tom could give no explanation of the matter— except that the man must have been one of the strikers. The meaning of his strange conduct he could no more understand than could Benny. It was a long way up the slope, and for more than half the distance it was very steep, like climbing up a ladder. Many times on the upward way the boys stopped to rest. Always when he heard Benny's breathing grow hard and laborious, Tom would complain of being himself tired, and they would turn about and sit for a few moments on a tie, facing down the slope. Out at last into the quiet autumn night, Benny breathed a long sigh of relief when he felt the yielding soil under his feet and the fresh air in his face. Ah, could he but have seen the village lights below him, 
the glory of the sky and the jewelry of the stars above him, and the half-moon slipping up into the heavens from its hiding-place beyond the heights of Campbell's Ledge, he would indeed have known how sweet and beautiful the upper earth is, even with the veil of night across it, compared with the black recesses of the mine. It was fully a mile to the boys' home, but with light hearts and willing feet they soon left the distance behind them and reached the low-roofed cottage, where the anxious mother waited in hope and fear for the coming of her children. "'Here we are, Mommy!' shouted Tom, as he came around the corner and saw her standing on the doorstep in the moonlight watching. Out into the road she ran then, and gathered her two boys into her arms, kissing their grimy, coal-blackened faces, and listened to their oft-interrupted story, with smiles and with tears, as she led them to her house. But Tom stopped at the door and turned back. "'I promised Sandy McCullough,' he said, "'to go over and tell him if I found Benny.' He said he'd wait up for me and go and help me hunt him up if I came back without him. It's only just over beyond the breaker. It won't take twenty minutes and Sandy will be expecting me. And without waiting for more words, the boy started off on a run. It was already past ten o'clock and he had not had a mouthful of supper, but that was nothing in consideration of the fact that Sandy had been good to him and would have helped him and was even now waiting for him. So with a light and grateful heart, he hurried on. He passed beyond the little row of cottages, of which his mother's was one, over the hill by the footpath, and then along the mine-car track to the breaker. Before him the great building loomed up like some huge castle of old, cutting its outline sharply against the moon-illumined sky, and throwing a broad black shadow for hundreds of feet to the west. Through the shadow went Tom, around by the engine-room, where the watchman's light was glimmering faintly through the grimy window, out again into the moonlight, up by a footpath to the summit of another hill, along by another row of darkened dwellings, to a cottage where a light was still burning, and there he stopped. The door opened before he reached it, and a man in shirt-sleeves stepped out and hailed him. "'Is that you, Tom? And did you find Benny?' "'Yes, Sandy. I came to tell you we just got home.' found him down in the south chambers. He tried to come out alone and got lost. So I'll not need you, Sandy, with the same thanks as if I did. And good night to you. Good night to you, Tom. I'm glad the lad's safe with the mother. Tom? As the boy turned away. You'll not be afraid to be going home alone? Tom laughed. Do I look scared, Sandy? Give yourself no fear for me. I'm afraid of not. Before Sandy turned in at his door, Tom had disappeared below the brow of the hill. The loose gravel rolled under his feet as he hurried down, and, once near the bottom, he slipped and fell. As he rose, he was astonished to see the figure of a man steal carefully along in the shadow of the breaker and disappear around the corner by the engine room. Tom went cautiously into the shadow and stopped for a moment in the track by the loading place to listen. He thought he heard a noise in there, something that sounded like the snapping of dry twigs. The next moment a man came out from under that portion of the breaker, with his head turned back over his shoulder, muttering as he advanced toward Tom. There, Mike, that's the last job of that kind I'll do for all the secret orders in the world. They put it on me because I've got no wife nor children, nor with the body to cry their eyes out, and I get a prison for it. But I've had the hate of me touch today, Mike, and I cannot do the like of this again. It's the last time, Minya, the last time. Mike, 
Why, there's no mic. Don't you speak, lad. Don't you whisper, don't you stir. The man stepped forward, a very giant in size, with a great beard floating on his breast, and laid his brawny hands on Tom's shoulders with a grip that made the lad wince. Tom did not stir. He was too much frightened for one thing, too much astonished for another. For before the man had finished speaking, there appeared under the loading place in the breaker a little flickering light, and the light grew into a flame, and the flame curled around the coal-black timbers and sent up little red tongues to lick the cornice of the long, low roof. Tom was so astounded that he could not speak, even if he had dared. But this giant was standing over him, gripping his shoulders in a painful clutch, and saying to him in a voice of emphasis and determination, Do you see me, lad? Do you hear me? What well, I say to you, it's not a single soul what you've seen here the night, and the life of you is not worth the dust it abode. Whisper a single word of it, and the Molly Maguires will take terrible revenge on you. Now then, to your home, win, and gin you turn your head or speak, you'll all wish you'd have been in the mists and the fire instead. With a vigorous push, he sent Tom from him at full speed down the track. But the boy had not gone far before the curiosity that overtook Lot's wife came upon him, and he turned and looked. He was just in time to see and hear the sleepy watchman open the door of the engine room, run out, give one startled look at the flames as they went creeping up the long slant of roof, and then make the still night echo with his cry of, Fire! Before twenty minutes had passed, the surrounding hills were alive with people who had come to look upon the burning breaker. The spectacle was a grand one. For many minutes the fire played about in the lower part of the building, among the pockets and the screens, and dashed up against the base of the shaft tower like lapping waves. Then the small square windows, dotting the black surface of the breaker here and there up at seventy feet of height, began to redden and to glow with the mounting flames behind them. A column of white smoke broke from the topmost cornice, little red tongues went creeping up to the very pinnacle of the tower, and then from the highest point of all, a great column of fire shot far up toward the onlooking stars, and the whole gigantic building was a single body of roaring, wavering flame. It burned rapidly and brilliantly, and soon after midnight there was but a mass of charred ruins covering the ground where once the breakers stood. There was little that could be saved, the cars in the loading place, the tools in the engine room, some loose lumber, and the household effects from a small dwelling house nearby. That was all. But among the many men who helped to save this little, none labored with such energetic effort, such daring zeal, such superhuman strength, as the huge-framed, big-bearded man they called Jack Rennie. The strike had become general. The streets of the mining towns were filled with idle, loitering men and boys. The drinking saloons drove a brisk business, and the merchants feared disaster. Tom had not told anyone as of yet his adventure at the breaker on the night of the fire. He knew that he ought to disclose his secret. Indeed, he felt a pressing duty upon him to do so, in order that the crime might be duly punished. But the secret order of Molly Maguire's was a terror in the coal regions in those days. The torch, the pistol, and the knife were the instruments with which it carried out its desperate decrees, and Tom was absolutely afraid to whisper a word of what he knew even to his mother, or to Benny. But one day the news went out that Jack Rennie had been arrested, charged with setting fire to the valley breaker. 
and soon afterward a messenger came to the house of the widow Taylor, saying that Tom was wanted immediately in Wilkes Bar, at the office of lawyer Pleadwell. Tom answered this summons gladly, as it might possibly afford a means by which he would be compelled to tell what he knew about the fire, with the least responsibility resting on him for the disclosure. But he resolved that, in no event, would he speak anything but the truth. After he was dressed and brushed to the satisfaction of his careful mother, Tom went with the messenger to the railroad station, and the fast train soon brought them into the city of Wilkes Bar, the county town of Luzerne County. On one of the streets radiating from the courthouse square, they stopped before a dingy-looking door on which was fastened a sign, reading, James G. Pleadwell, Attorney at Law. Tom was taken, first, into the outer room of the law offices, where a man sat at a table writing, and two or three other men, evidently minors, were talking together in a corner, and then, after a few moments, the door into an inner apartment was opened, and he was called in there. This room was more completely furnished than the outer one. There was a carpet on the floor, and there were pictures on the walls. Also there were long shelves full of books, all bound alike in leather, all with red labels near the tops, and black labels near the bottoms of their backs. At the farther side of the room sat a short, slim, beardless man, with pale face and restless eyes, whom Tom recognized as having been in the mine with the visiting strikers the day Benny was lost, and by a round center table sat lawyer Pleadwell, short and stout, with bristly mustache and a stubby nose, on which rested a pair of gold-rimmed eyeglasses. As Tom entered the room, the lawyer regarded him closely, and waving his hand towards an easy chair, he said, Be seated, my lad. Your name is, uh, let me see. Tom, Thomas Taylor, sir, answered the boy. Well, Tom, you saw the fire at the Valley Breaker. Yes, sir, said Tom. I guess I was the first one that saw it. So I have heard, said the lawyer, slowly. Then, after a pause, Tom, have you told to anyone what you saw, or whom you saw, at the moment of the breaking out of that fire? I have not, sir answered Tom, wondering how the lawyer knew he had seen anyone. Do you expect or desire to disclose your knowledge? I do, said Tom. I ought to a told before, I meant to a told, but I didn't dare. I'd like to tell now. Tom was growing bold. He felt that he had kept the secret long enough, and that now it must out. Lawyer Pleadwell twirled his glasses thoughtfully for a few moments, then placed them deliberately on his nose, and turned straight to Tom. Well, Tom, he said, we may as well be plain with you. I represent Jack Rennie, who is charged with firing this breaker. And Mr. Carillon here is officially connected with the Order of Molly Maguire's, in pursuance of whose decree the deed is supposed to have been done. We have known, for some time, that a boy was present when the breaker was fired. Last night, we learned that you were that boy. Now, what we want of you is simply this, to keep your knowledge to yourself. This will be to your advantage, 
as well as for the benefit of others. Will you do it? To Tom, the case had taken on a new aspect. Instead of being, as he had supposed, in communication with those who desired to punish the perpetrators of the crime, he found himself in the hands of the prisoner's friends. But his Scotch stubbornness came to the rescue, and he replied, I can't do it, sir. It wasn't right to burn the breaker, and the man I'd done it ought to go to jail for it. Lawyer Pleadwell inserted a thumb into the armhole of his vest and poised his glasses carefully in his free hand. He was preparing to argue the case with Tom. Suppose you were a minor, as you hoped to be, as your father was before you, and a brutal and soulless corporation, having reduced your wages to the starvation point, while its vaults were gorged with money, should kick you, like a dog, out of their employ, when you humbly asked them for enough to keep the body and soul together. Suppose you knew that the laws were made for the rich and against the poor, as they are, and that your only redress, and a speedy one, would be to spoil the property of your persecutors, till they came to treat you like a human being, with rights to be respected, as they surely would, for they fear nothing so much as the torch. Would you think it right for a fellow workman to deliver you up to their vengeance and fury for having taught them such a lesson? The lawyer placed his glasses on his nose and leaned forward eagerly towards Tom. The argument was not without its effect. Tom had long been led to believe that corporations were tyrannical monsters, but the boy's inherent sense of right and wrong was proof against even this specious plea. All the same, he said, I can't make out as it's right to burn a breaker. Why, you might say the same thing if it had been murder. Pleadwell saw that he was on the wrong track with this clear-headed boy. Ah, <sighs> well, he said, settling back in his chair. If peaceful persuasion will not avail, I trust you are prepared, in case of disclosure, to meet whatever the Molly Maguires have in store for you. Yes, answered Tom, boldly. I am. I've been afraid of them, and that's what's kept me from telling. But I won't be a coward any more. They can do what they're a mind to with me. The lawyer was in a quandary, and Carolyn shot angry glances at Tom. Here was a lad who held Jack Rennie's fate in his hands, and whom neither fear nor persuasion could move. What was to be done? Pleadwell motioned to Carolyn, and they rose and left the room together, while Tom sat, with tumultuously beating heart, but with constantly increasing resolution. The men were gone but a few moments, and came back with satisfied looks on their faces. "'I have learned,' said the lawyer, addressing Tom, in a voice laden with apparent sympathy, "'that you have a younger brother who is blind. That is a sad affliction.' "'Yes, indeed it is,' replied Tom. "'Yes, indeed.' "'I have learned also.' that there is a possibility of cure if the eyes are subjected to proper and timely treatment. Yes, that's what a doctor told us. What a blessing it would be 
if sight could be restored to him, what a delight! What rejoicing there would be in your little household, would there not? Oh, indeed there would, cried Tom. Oh, indeed, it's what we're a-thinking of allays, it's what I pray for every night, sir. We've been a-trying to save money enough to do it, but it's slow a-getting it. It's awful slow. Ah, how much? Lawyer Pleadwell paused and twirled his eyeglasses thoughtfully. How much would it cost, Tom? Only a hundred dollars, sir. That's what the doctor said. Another pause. Then, with great deliberation. Tom, suppose my friend here should see fit to place in your hands today the sum of one hundred dollars to be used in your brother's behalf. Could you return the favor by keeping to yourself the knowledge you possess concerning the origin of the fire at the breaker? The hot blood surged up into Tom's face. His heart pounded like a hammer against his breast. His head was in a whirl. A hundred dollars, and sight for Benny. No lies to be told, only to keep quiet, and sight for Benny. Would it be very wrong? But oh, to think of Benny and the joy of seeing. The temptation was terrible. Stronger, less affectionate natures than Tom's might well have yielded. End of chapter 2